0: That's investher, promo code 100 best ever to get $100 off your ticket. the length of the normal trial for a limited time, go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action for more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: It's a great time to be in real estate, and uh, so I, I just would encourage anyone to keep going, never stop, I'll never quit. Best
0: Ever listeners, I'm excited to introduce you to our newest host that we're bringing on to the team. His name is Slocum Reed, along with myself and Osh. Slocum will be providing value to every interview he does. I've known Slocum for years, and I've watched his portfolio continue to grow. He currently owns and operates 65 units, including converting three units into an office building. So he's an owner-operator. He's coming from certainly a different perspective than I have. I know he's going to bring his expertise and cut through the fluff and get the best real estate investing advice ever for you. So welcome Slocum Reed. Best ever listeners.
2: Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed and I'm here with Joe Danza. Joe's joining us from the Washington DC area. He's the founder and CEO of Simplified Real Estate Investments, LLC, which invests in single family residential and residential and commercial multifamily, including vacation rentals currently primarily involved as a limited partner in multiple syndications, breaking into the general partnership space as well now. Joe, can you
1: start us off with a little more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Yeah, thanks for having me. So my background has been really about um, cash flow for the last 14 years. We've been in real estate for the last 14 years, and, and it's about multiple streams of income as we weather on the different cycles of the market. So, you know, we're jumping into the multifamily space because we see the value and all of the benefits that we can reap from the cost segregations and things like that. Awesome. So, based on my notes here,
2: Joe, you started out as a buy and hold with your own money
1: investor. And have you gone full time into real estate investing? I'm still doing my W 2 jobs. And so I'm really busy, but. We still hold all of our buy and holds, um, and, and they, they, they're like infinite returns today. We've been able to pull all of our money out. They've been some amazing investments that have allowed us to jump into different spaces and to really leverage uh, the different assets in real estate.
2: Yeah, this market's been good to a lot of people in a lot of ways, Joe. I could tell similar stories, and I know a lot of my friends can too. You started 14 years ago. 14 years ago now is
1: 2008. So is that pre-crash or post-crash? It was during the crash that we started. Yeah. Our first property that was going to be a flip ended up becoming our Burr before they were even called burrs, And we still own that property today. And you know, we've gotten 100% of our money out of that investment. So you know, it's pretty neat to watch everything come full cycle. Gotcha.
2: Yeah. Oh, it was a very interesting time to get into real estate investing for sure. With those investments, as you're able to pull out capital and scale through that, What is it that intrigued you about being a limited partner in apartment syndications? Was it simply remaining passive in those investments so they weren't taking as much of your time because
1: you already had a rental portfolio and you still had a job? Actually, with our, our rental portfolio that we own today, we have so much revenue that's generated. And so we actually take advantage of the cost segregation. That's primarily our focus, just because we're looking for ways to pay less tax. And and, uh, multifamily proves to be that solution for us. And we're able to reinvest and get, again, it's like infinite returns as well. We invest money into the deals. Sometimes we'll get two or three times our money back, but it's really for those tax benefits. And again, it's also for passive purposes too. It, It just allows us to free up our time as well. Gotcha. Given your real estate experience
2: before becoming a limited partner, when you were looking to get into syndication deals, and you said it was for the cost segregation, for tax purposes, because of the revenue you were already generating, how were you vetting general partners to invest with? You are capable of looking behind the
1: curtain in a lot of ways. How are you qualifying operators? That's a great question. So, you know, we looked at a lot of people's track record, and then it's really about can we trust you? right? Uh, You know, everybody can run a deal well, uh, or at least the performer looks great uh, on paper, but, you know, we're looking to see, are you trustworthy? Do you have integrity? Can we trust you at the end of the day? Because when things get rocky, because everything gets rocky, everything is cyclical in in real estate. And we want to make sure that when things get rocky, you're transparent and you're honest with us because, you know, it, it's our revenue. It, it's, you know, this company supports a lot of people, you know, and and so we're, you know, relying on people when we invest funds that we're going to get a return on our money. Trust is essential. Thinking about vetting operators, how do you quantify trust? I don't know if you can really truly quantify it. I think it's about having multiple conversations with them talking talking to, to folks who have participated in their deals. And I think it's just really looking at have they been through a couple market cycles, right? And uh, so, you know, those are just a couple things that we use to like build trust with our operators. A couple market cycles. Does that mean to you that you need to know these people have been investing since the 90s? Yeah, we're looking for people who've been around who understand the market because every, you know, 2008 was very tough. We lived the market in 2008 and we've lived what COVID did to the market as well. So we're looking for operators who've been able to weather it regardless of whether the the market's booming or whether the market's going down. They need to be able to operate and their properties need to be able to, to generate revenue regardless of the cycle. Gotcha. So vetting operators on trust
2: and their experience through multiple market cycles. Yeah. Given your experience of 08, and it sounds like you want to make sure you're prepared in the event that 2008 happens again, how does that impact the way that you underwrite the deals that are shared with you? Do you have any benchmarks that you're looking to hit, particularly in the event of a hypothetical recession?
1: Yeah, so when we typically underwrite the deals, we're looking to make sure that the rents, they're going up or the expense ratios make sense. We're looking at, uh, you know, the potential income. Um, we're looking at a lot of different things to make sure that the property is going to perform. Like we're not just relying on upside alone. They've got to show that the property is able to generate revenue without the upside. And we're also looking at stress testing. We look at a lot of different things when it comes to making sure that the property is is going to produce regardless of the cycle. Some of the deals that we're invested in, you know, COVID hit, they were able to take a 30, 40% haircut and we were still able to get our our, our dividends through quarterly or monthly. So those are the types of deals that we really look for. Is is there enough room or I like to call it runway. Gotcha. So there are a couple of things that come to mind in
2: what you've said so far, Joe. First of all, the 30 to 40% haircut in COVID. What do you mean by that? That collections went down by 30 to 40% for the operators you were invested with?
1: Yeah, so some properties, they struggled, but they were, because the, the, the deal was underwritten very conservatively, um, they were able to weather the storm well, and they had enough in reserves. So those are the types of things that we look for as well. What does the reserves look like? Uh, and, and, you know, when rent collection goes down, are, are you able to offset it with other revenue in the property coming in? Gotcha. So you talked about stress
2: tests. What are the key factors in your stress tests, Joe? You've mentioned reserves. You've mentioned what happens if collections or rent rates decrease.
1: What else are you looking at? So we're looking at vacancy rates. It's primarily vacancy, like how many units can go down or not pay before the property's in trouble. So we're really looking at that very closely. Obviously now, you know, the market has taken off, so everything is booming. Uh, So, you know, stress testing, we still look at, but it's one of those things that we we keep in the back of our mind. Gotcha.
2: To make sure that we're on the same page, Joe, now that you're getting involved in general partnerships, are you doing that
1: primarily as a capital raiser? As capital raising and underwriting, we'll go out and search for deals too. So, you know, it's looking at multiple angles uh, as we jump into the general partnership areas. Matchup. Can you tell us what markets you're currently invested in? So we're primarily in the Sunbelt states for the syndication deals and, and then our portfolio, we span from New York all the way down to the Carolinas and we're out in the Midwest as well. So we're pretty spread out well. And that's part of our strategy is is diversification, making sure that we're not heavily invested in one market. Should things change with landlord laws or if if something happens in that market specifically. Yeah, you've got your fingers in a lot of cookie jars. You might
2: have more cookie jars than fingers. Yeah. Thinking about that and thinking about the experience of COVID and the haircut that some of your deals took, considering the markets that you want to invest in, Joe, or the the markets that you're willing to consider from operators who bring you deals when they're raising capital, how much are you looking into the way that the localities
1: within those markets handled COVID? We're typically, when we look at these markets, we're looking at, like I like to call them the the market drivers. So like GDP, we're looking at jobs, we're looking at different types of revenue that exist in the market. We're looking at a variety of things to make sure that there's going to be job growth. There's going to be opportunities in those markets for those buildings to perform and to do well. And, th- and that applies to all of our, our rental portfolio across the board. It's making sure that we're not going into depressed markets or markets that are struggling. It's making sure that there are multiple revenue streams in that market that makes sense that's going to spur the growth. Let me ask this
2: question with much more conventional phrasing, taking out of account the last couple of years and what COVID has done to real estate investing, how much of an emphasis are you placing on investing in areas
1: where the legislation is more landlord-friendly? it plays a big deal. Some of our properties are still in New York and we lived that through covid, right? And we saw, that's where we saw some of our haircuts taken that so big size, yeah. Yeah, so that's why we look at a lot of legislation. We make sure that the properties that we're investing in and or that we're purchasing, you know, they're in states that are landlord friendly. They're not so much focused on the tenant but more so on making sure that we have a fair shake instead of uh, long moratoriums of not having to pay rent. <laughs> Yeah, I get that. I'm based
2: in Cincinnati, Joe. In my experience, how apartments, how assets weathered the eviction moratorium had a lot to do with how active and how involved the ownership was in management. So let me put it this way. All of the owner operators that I know None of us had rent collection issues in early 2020. It was the investors who were not local who hired the big box property management company for whom their 20, 50, 80 units just was not a priority for a property management company managing multiple thousands of doors. Those are the guys who took haircuts much larger than 30 or 40%, some of them 80%. In a very landlord-friendly state like Ohio, Now, you're involved in a couple of syndications now as an LP. Talking about your portfolio that you own individually, Joe, it
1: sounds like it's pretty spread out. How many different markets are you in? We're in about five different markets, and we purposely did that. Again, it's for diversification purposes. Legislation changes. Things change. What are those five markets? South Carolina, North Carolina, New York, Missouri, and then Florida as well. North and South Carolina, New York, Missouri, and Florida. You self-manage all of that, right? That's a joke. Yeah. You don't have to answer, but please, <laughs> but, but please give me the answer that you want to So we have teams. My company is all about multiple streams of income. And so we have our own property management company. So we have some local teams on ground that help us manage the properties. How um, large are these properties? They vary. They could be 10, 15 units, and they're managed by local folks on ground that are very invested in these properties. We spend a lot of time vetting them, and they do quite well.
0: We'll get back to the show. with first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge. But Investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self storage investing. Visit passiveinvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's passiveinvesting.com forward slash red flags.
2: Out of those markets, which market has the fewest units and how many
1: units is it? I would say the New York market. We've purposely been divesting of New York. Uh, It's been a little rough. Um, So, you know, we have probably about five or six left. In that market, we've been purposely- Of course. Uh, di- and you're divesting from New York. Yeah. So let's talk about one of the other ones. So a market that we're heavily invested in is in the Carolinas. It's landlord friendly, very easy to work with, with tenants. We're doing a lot of uh, vacation rentals in that space as well. It's just another lucrative market that we're in. And, and we're you know, taking those profits and we're reinvesting those into multifamily as well. Yeah. The question is, where do you have the fewest units? with the exception
2: of markets you're getting out of. And what I'm getting at, Joe, I'll go ahead and say, from an operational perspective, the fewer units or the lower your gross revenue, the more difficult it is to self-manage, especially from a distance. So you said you have your own teams on the ground. How are you managing a boots on the ground management team for a small portfolio? How are you
1: handling that? Again this goes back to like what I talked about with the syndications. It's about trust, right? So we're we're vetting the teams that we have on ground and then we're meeting with them throughout the month. Zoom is a great tool, right? And so you know, we're sitting, we're going through the financials together. We're walking through, you know, the properties which, which ones are turning, which ones are full. We're going through all of the that data every single month. And then we also do surprise visits out to the properties too. So it's about, you know, fostering the trust, empowering them to do the jobs that they need to do on ground. And then we just kind of fall in and, uh, and see how things are going when we show up. Joe, sure, let's get into the numbers
2: of one of those situations. You're in Missouri. How many units do you have in
1: Missouri? 84 units out there. Gotcha. In one MSA? In one MSA. And so how many, many properties working. is that? I think that's about six properties.
2: Six properties, 84 doors in one metro area. And in the Carolinas, what
1: did the numbers look like there? So the Carolinas, they vary just because we've got the vacation rentals out there, but sure. we have about over like 200 units in the Carolinas. Okay. How many different MSAs is that? That's over three MSAs.
2: Gotcha. So it sounds like each location in which you're investing has mm-hmm enough critical mass that you can hire people to work for you
1: full-time. Absolutely. That's the only way it works. We've got those property managers on ground taking care of things while we provide it. It's really asset management is what we provide the oversight on, but we also do have that core functionality with the property management side of things too.
2: Joe, I know a lot of real estate investors who are somewhere between intrigued by jumping into a new market to fully intent on getting into a new market, maybe a second or a third market that is at a sufficient distance from them that they could not personally manage the properties they'd have to build a new team in that new location. The vast majority of real estate investors who invest in multiple markets do not self-manage because of the distance. What are your top tips for establishing self-management in a market at a distance?
1: number one, do the research. Make sure you understand the economic drivers that are in that market. Make sure you understand the legislation. Make sure you understand how is the revenue going to be generated for this property? Does it make sense? And the expenses to go with it. Every market's going to be different. So it's really about doing that research. And then it's really about finding the right team. I like to call it the dream team. People that have the skill sets that you need, but also that you can trust we've been burned so it's all about trust for us so those really are the two big things it's about doing the research and and having the dream team because you can't be everywhere you can't travel out to all the properties all the time you've got to have the right boots on ground taking care of things so the wheels keep going with or without you and that's something that we've really perfected over the years is just getting the dream team vetting and making sure that if i get hit by a bus tomorrow The bus keeps going. So it's been quite the experience or the ride. Gotcha. Talk me through your
2: step-by-step process of building a dream team. Let's say Boise, Idaho. You're going to invest in Boise outside of the market fundamentals of why and the economic drivers in this legislation. You like it. Let's just say, for the sake of example, that you like Boise. You're going to start investing in Boise. First of all, I assume your first acquisition needs to be of a size or of a scale that you would be able to handle or afford. I assume your first acquisition in Boise needs to be large enough to justify on-site management.
1: It is. So it's about making sure that we have finding that right team, right? And, and it's about making sure that the, the deal itself makes sense. It's got to be large enough. And the margins have to make sense because you've got to pay folks to do the work. Yeah. So hard. let's assume, Joe, that you have that. You have the margins. Talk us through the steps of how you find the people. It goes back to your research, right? It's finding out who's good in the market. It's asking other operators who's reliable, who's dependable, who knows their job, and ultimately who's trustworthy. And I can't go back more times again about trust because I can't say how many times we've been ripped off because we're investing in markets that we're not able to drive to. So it's about making sure you can trust them at the end of the day, that they have the right skill sets. And sometimes we have overlooked the right skill sets to make sure that we get the folks that we can trust. We're doing references, we're doing background checks, we're, you know, we're making sure that the folks that we hire on ground are the right ones. Um, and, And, you know, and it depends on the property, right? So, We may need maintenance folks. We may need leasing consultants. It just depends on what we're investing in, in that market where we're building that team. It could be cleaners for all that we know. It just depends on the asset.
2: So let's say you find the asset. You identify the pieces that you need to put together, the people you need to have on your dream team. It sounds like when it's time to start hiring the right people, people that you know that you can trust, the first thing that you do is you go to
1: other operators in that market and you ask them for recommendations. Yeah, absolutely. Why reinvent the wheel when you can ask for the cream of the crop? It's building those relationships in that, network, in that marketplace, right? So a lot of the markets that we're going into, we're networking with folks, we're networking with operators, we're networking with property managers, we're networking with a lot of different folks to make sure that we're building the team that we need prior to entering that market. So let's say you've done your networking. You have been given
2: recommendations that you followed. Are you also doing general job postings?
1: Or are you on Indeed looking for people in that market? So everybody on our team today has been through word of mouth and referrals. So typically, everybody's resume is going to look great. Everybody's going to interview for the most part well. Right. We're, We're looking for referrals based off their performance. And we're looking for examples, references. That's kind of what we're looking for. So everybody on the team that we've hired today has been strictly from referrals, which has been pretty amazing. And we've been very fortunate. The ones that we took off Indeed or off some of the hiring boards, those are the ones that we've had to fire because they just didn't check out later on.
2: You know, I'll say at least within maintenance and rehab, that's been my experience as well. Everyone who's currently working for me was in word of mouth referral. And the people that I've hired off of online job boards are the people who haven't panned out. Some of them being great, high integrity people who do good work, who just I wasn't the right fit for. The people I've hired who have been a good fit have all been word of mouth. So what does your process look like for vetting people after you've received these referrals?
1: It's really about asking about their experience, right? Tell me a little bit what you've done. Tell me like how you would turn a property if it's, you know, distressed or walk us through it. And it's really past experience and give us some examples of your success stories. And that's really it because we're really taking the referrals from people that we trust. And we just don't go ask from referrals from people that we just met. It's through our relationships, through our networks that we're asking people that we can trust. Trust is everything in this business. It's a small community. Even though there's you know thousands and thousands of investors out there, it's a small community. Word gets around very quickly. So that's why we use our network really, primarily for vetting everybody. That makes sense. Thinking about my own
2: experience, I don't hand over the keys to the kingdom to anyone who hasn't already performed on a small task specific to maintenance personnel who will be entering occupied apartments. A part of the interview process is to spend a day with me that is paid on a 1099 basis, spend a day with me handling maintenance issues in apartments, giving me the opportunity to see them in action, interacting with my tenants For Well, sometimes it's a half day, but I want to watch them interact. I want to give them small jobs before I entrust to them large jobs where my exposure will be greater, especially when occupied apartments and interaction with the tenants is involved. Do you have something similar where you vet people by giving them lower level responsibilities first and then letting them grow into the role? Or are you finding that with these referrals, you're hiring people that you can give the full breadth of their job responsibilities
1: to them on day one? It depends on the job that they're being hired for. So we're definitely giving them bits and pieces to see how they'll handle the stress. And then others, it's like, here's everything. Good luck. And they, they, they take it on and, 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 you know, they are our rock stars, right? And, And we make sure that we compensate them well because they are going above and beyond and they are taking care of our most expensive assets. Gotcha.
2: Time for a segue, Joe, are you ready for our best ever lightning round? Yeah, absolutely. What is the best ever book you've recently read?
1: I would say Deep Work by Cal Newport. Awesome. Cal Newport is great. Yes. what is your best ever way to give back so we host an adpi meetup in the dc area so we're, we're focused on helping uh, our bedrooms adpi so active duty passive income so we host a meetup there and uh and, and so it's just about educating our service members i've been in the army so it's all about giving back to them and giving them the tools that they need to be successful gotcha that's awesome
2: As a real estate investor, what's the biggest mistake you've made and
1: the best ever lesson that came from it? I think the biggest mistake we've ever made is we've been trusted folks without doing the necessary due diligence and and we've paid for it dearly. So that's why uh, when we do our referrals, or when we hire folks, it's usually through our network of folks. It's because we've been burned and and it's the lessons of hard knocks, but we're learning from them and and we continue to move forward. Awesome. What's your best ever advice? I would say keep going. Things are difficult, right? And, uh, you know, we've been through some very, very difficult moments uh, from the time we started. And if we had stopped, we would not be where we're at today, where we're, we have a big portfolio and it's a great time to be in real estate. And uh, so I, I just would encourage anyone to keep going, never stop and never quit. Where can people get in touch with you? They can reach out to me at simplifiedrei.com. Check on our, our website. Um, we have a free giveaway for your your listeners. So they can just, uh, it, it's our cash flow guide um, that they can listen to. And the other thing uh, that I'd like to offer your listeners is, uh, so one of my business partners, uh, Seth Ferguson, he's hosting the Multifamily Conference located in Toronto, Canada on 14-15 May. I've got a promo code, Joe10, and you guys can get 10% off. Your listeners can get 10% off. Awesome. And
2: links to those websites will be included in the show notes for this episode. Joe, thank you. Best ever listeners, Thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gotten value from this episode and this conversation on the value of trust in commercial real estate investing, please subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend, someone you know who we can add value to in this conversation. Thank you and have a best ever day. Thanks for having me.